Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you again today. Isn't it nice that the weather is changing? I was out on my motorcycle yesterday with all the rockers. I'm not much of a rocker, but, um, but it was uh, bright sunshine and it uh, flattered to deceive, didn't it? It, it, uh, it told us that it was warmer than it actually was, but, uh, but it was a delightful um, feeling that uh, maybe the winter is over and spring is on its way. But of course, uh, folks have already um, suggested to me that Ohio has many ways of uh, kind of drawing you into its evil plan <laughs> as far as uh, weather is concerned. And so uh, I'm, not going to take, uh, I'm not going to take that as an indication that it's all over, but, um, but nevertheless, it was uh, very pleasant. And um, this last week, Sally and I have had a very pleasant week yet again going around the amazing variety of house churches which have all of their own particularities and specifics and, and um, idiosyncrasies, and yet they all have this remarkable unanimity and sense of common calling. And so it's been a great privilege for us to continue to do that over these past few weeks. I think we're up to, I think we're up to about 38 House church is that right, Sal? About 38, 35, 38. And um, one of the things that um, that came up this week, I, I want to just um, just start the sermon with this week because it's really about the sermon. Lots of house churches use the content from Sunday to give them the, if you like, the the beginning of their study together when they gather during the week. And uh, one of the things that uh, was asked of me was whether I could provide some questions that um, could help that conversation get going. And um, it depends on the kind of preacher that you are and the kind of ways in which the Lord has formed you in this role and calling. But for me, uh, the process of preparation is a very dynamic one and really doesn't complete until I get up here and begin speaking to you. And so it's much more difficult uh, for me in my content preparation to provide you with questions that will really center on what it is that God says on Sundays. But I think it's a great idea. And so one of the house churches have already volunteered to have one of their members at one of the services taking notes and coming up with maybe three or four questions. And it may be that there are others here who would like to do that. And if there are, I would be more than happy to meet with you in between the services this morning. And um, we can just take your name and we can add you to that group of people that helps to serve the rest of the body in providing some pointers for discussions that will come out of the week's message. I hope that's, um, I hope that's understandable and that all of you are following what it is that I'm saying. Last week, you'll remember, just take a little drink out of my bicycle bottle. It always makes me look more athletic, I think, when I bring a bicycle bottle up here. Um, uh, last week, you'll remember, we, um, we began looking at the issue of the kingdom, and we noted that there was a way of the king. And we looked back through Scripture back to the first book of the Bible, where we had looked for the beginnings of an understanding of covenant, 
What does it mean for God to, to call and to create a relationship with his creatures? Well, that, that word, that, that, uh, that undergirding principle is described uh, with the word covenant in the Bible. It means two become one. It means that there's an agreement that is initiated by the greater to the lesser, by the stronger to the weaker, that allows the weaker and the lesser to come into a relationship with the greater and the stronger. That covenant relationship is a relationship that is first fully articulated in the life of Abraham and Sarah. And then in the first book of the Bible again, we encounter the other great character of that first book. And by that I mean uh, the person who has as much of the whole of the first book dedicated to them as any other character. If you count up the verses, the two big stories are the stories of Abraham and Sarah and the story of Joseph. And last week we went through a merry romp through that story and um, I know some of you were a bit surprised that we could get through it all in 30 minutes and wonder why it is that we can't do that every week. But, um, but there we are. There are different ways of engaging with the text each week. But last week we looked at how it was that God was shaping Joseph's life so that he could be the representative that God wanted him to be because kingdom is about taking responsibility to represent the king, or at least in terms of our own life, that's what it means. And so we looked at Joseph's life and we, we began to see that the only way that we can represent the king of the universe is, of course, to take a low path, to learn humility. It is in surrender that those who would so easily be identified as victims become victors. And so Joseph, the victim, becomes Joseph, the victor. Joseph, the one who is abused, now becomes the one with authority. Joseph, the one who is persecuted, becomes the one with divine and godly power. And of course, the power that he exercises, we weren't able to get into this last week, the power that he exercises indicates to us the first use of the authority and power of the kingdom that comes to us as God equips us to represent him. Next week, we'll be looking at the works of the kingdom, how God demonstrates his kingdom through us. And we'll be looking at signs and wonders and miracles and the ways in which God not only wants to bring those to us, but wants to work them through us. And of course, it'll be tremendously exciting as we engage with the text of Scripture, not only next week, but in the coming weeks and months as we come to understand what it means for us to be the disciples that Jesus described as teaching those to do everything that I've taught you to do. Because obviously, Jesus taught his first disciples how to heal the sick. And so obviously, all of us have to learn how to do that. It's not a matter of whether we believe particular interpretations of Scripture about gifts and ministries and graces and all of that kind of thing. It's simply this issue. 
Do we believe that a disciple of Jesus is supposed to imitate his life? And do we believe that Jesus, when he gives his commission to his first disciples, telling them to teach others what it is that he's taught them, do we believe that he meant all of it? Well, obviously, I think that he meant all of it. And obviously, the vast majority of Christians believe that that's what Jesus meant. And so we'll be looking at that next week. It'll be just an introduction rather than a conclusion. But when you look at Joseph and you ask yourself, what is the first use of the authority and power that allows us to represent Jesus in the works of his kingdom? Then you see that the very first and the most significant and undoubtedly the most important use of the authority and power that the king equips us with, the most important use of it is to forgive others. Joseph wrestled with it. He went up and down the mountain coming to terms with forgiving his brothers for what it was that they did. But in the end, the great breakthrough of the story was that Joseph forgave them. And at the very end of the first book in the Bible, Jacob, their father, has died and the brothers are terrified that this man with such noble and remarkable authority will somehow come into their lives and exact revenge. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 18 says, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. There it is. Through the work of forgiveness comes salvation. The first indication in Scripture that the path has begun that will end in the shadow of the cross. And you and I participate in that calling and ministry when we take the authority and power that the king places upon us and we use it to forgive others. And so the way of the king is something that we've looked at, not in exhaustive detail, but, but nevertheless we've looked at it. This week, we're going to look briefly at how we can participate in the word of the king. And then next week, we'll look at the works of the king and his kingdom. We'll go to Mark's gospel together. If you'll join me there. That'll probably be a good place to start. There are suggestions in the New Testament scholarship that Mark's gospel may be the first of all the gospels. Whether that be true or not, 
is not so much the important issue. It's much more that, that Mark's gospel is the kind of condensed graphic novel version of the New Testament story. There is this, there is this Marvel comic version of the gospel, which has these leaping and bounding stories that take us from place to place to situation to situation, the things that Jesus says. And we have this, we have this constant interaction with the emotional response of the crowd. They were amazed. And then occasionally, Jesus is amazed at them. We don't quite have Shazam in there, but you get the same kind of feeling. And when you look at Mark's gospel, it's, it's kind of defined by, by three mountaintops. The very beginning of Mark's gospel tells us that Mark is writing this and most scholars believe that, that he has transcribed the sermons of Peter and has shaped them so that we can, as it were, receive and understand them. And he says right here at the very beginning of his gospel that this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In verse nine of that same chapter, it says this, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. The Gospel of Mark is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the first testimony that we hear of Jesus, the Son of God, is the testimony of heaven, the testimony of his Father as he speaks over his Son, as he sends the Holy Spirit so that there is a permanent connection now between heaven and earth. The permanent connection is through the person of Jesus who becomes the portal to the kingdom of heaven. So that now everything that is heaven is present on earth in the person of Jesus because the permanent connection of the Holy Spirit makes that possible. But above and beyond all of that is the identity of the one who is the portal into heaven. The identity of Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. We go through the stories of, of Jesus engaging with his first disciples, doing work in the northern part of Israel, in the Galilee. And then Jesus withdraws from that ministry after John has been put to death. And on retreat with his disciples, he 
He asks the disciples who He is and they begin to see who He is. He's not just Messiah, but He is the Son of God. And then He takes the three leaders of the apostolic band, Peter, James and John, and they climb with Him to a very high mountain. And there on the mountain of transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, we hear the voice again. But this time, the voice is addressed to the disciples. This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm very pleased. Listen to him. The first is about works of the king made possible by the impartation of the spirit. The second is about the words of the king and how we should listen to him. And then finally, there is testimony not from heaven but from earth. And in that moment, when the testimony is from the earth. It's not that the sky is torn in two, but it is the curtain that is torn from top to bottom. Because as Jesus dies, the man who oversaw his execution, the centurion, says, surely, This man was the Son of God. As Jesus breathes his last, as he releases his spirit, and the spirit is withdrawn from his body, the voice not from heaven, but from sinful humanity, says this is the Son of God. And at that moment, the symbolic barrier between God and the people of the earth is torn from top to bottom. In the same way that the sky is torn by hands that reach down from heaven and tear apart the elements of the universe so that the Spirit can descend upon the Son of God. So, hands, it would appear, reach down from heaven and grasp that symbol of separation and tear it from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. It's God who removes the barrier. And so we see the way of Jesus articulated in his brokenness and humility. And in that brokenness, we're made whole. And in that humility, we find the great story that our life can start again. And we can embrace his death as our death.
and his resurrection as our life. But I'm not going to talk about any of that this week. But it's a kind of a fun introduction, isn't it? What I'm going to talk about this week is how can we participate in the word of the king? In Mark's gospel, as he does on so many occasions, he condenses and crystallizes what it is that Jesus is doing so that we can see it with rare intensity. In chapter 1 and verse 14, it says this, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. So here, Jesus enters the fray. Here, Jesus steps onto the stage of human history as the public figure that he has come to be. And the summary of all that he says is, the time is right. The kingdom of God is near, is at hand, is within reach. Repent and believe this good news. So this is an enormously important statement because in this we find all that Jesus taught summarised and if we can understand the summary, then of course we'll be able to navigate an understanding of all that Jesus taught. So when you look at that very short verse, there are four key words. Time, kingdom, repent, and believe. The word time is really interesting. The Greek language is the, is the language that the New Testament is written in. As you well know, it's Koine Greek. It's the, it's the Greek of the streets. It's common Greek. It's not high academic intellectual Greek, either of the time then or of the time now. And there are, within the Greek language, many words for the word that we would use in English for time. The two perhaps most regularly used, there are four uses of Greek words in the New Testament that are all translated as time for us into our English language. But the two most common words in the New Testament are chronos, 
and kairos. Kronos is when the sermon is dragging and you're just sneaking a look at your watch and you're wondering whether you can get out and have a coffee, maybe a Bill's Donut. (laughs) Kairos is when time stands still and you're not aware of the passing of chronological time, you're more conscious that this is a significant moment, this is a significant event. It may be a negative significant event, you swerved to miss the dog in the road. It might be a positive significant event. You delighted at the party of your first child the birthday party. Do you you see what I mean? The the Kairos event is an event when time stands still, normal chronological time, and you're not conscious of the passing of time, but you know that this event is significant. Jesus says, this is Kairos. And Kairos means that the kingdom the kingship, the rule, the reign, the very interaction with the living God who is the king of the universe. He is touchable right now. The king, the king of the universe, if only you knew you would be able to reach out your hand and touch him. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. And you say, well, if it's that kind of event, just tell me how. I want to know that. What do I have to do to know that I'm in the very presence of the king? What is it that has to happen in my life? Well, it's very simple, says Jesus. You have to have a reorientation. A reorientation. The compass of your life that is usually drawn towards the agenda of your self-centeredness has to be freed from the magnetism of the world around you, of your own ambitions and and aspirations. That compass needle has to be liberated from the magnetic field of your self-centeredness. And that compass needle of your heart in being so liberated needs to turn toward the true center of the universe, God himself. Well, how how does that happen? Well, the word in Greek is metanoia. Meta meaning change, noia meaning mind, heart, inner life. Our inner life The inside of us, not the outside of us, our outside follows the inside. If we change the outside, we don't always change the inside, but if you change the inside, you'll always change the outside. 
And so we reorientate the inside. Metanoia, there's a change of our mind, there's a change of our attitudes, there's a change of our aspirations, there's a change of our heart. We, we find the compass needle turning towards the Lord and we see that He is the centre And when we know that he is the centre, we will draw near. And when we draw near, we hear good news. We hear the word of God. Paul puts it like this, he says, faith comes by hearing and that by the word of Christ. Our life is reoriented towards God. He is the center of the universe. We hear what it is that he's saying. And this creates faith in us to believe what it is that's been said. And so... We have faith. We believe the good news. Very simple. Jesus spent the next three years helping the disciples engage with the large and the small Kairos moments. Sometimes he would say things like, who do people say I am? Or he would say, well, what do you think? Or sometimes he would allow the situation to conspire, to produce in them the questions that they were longing to understand. Jesus, why is it that we can't do that when we want to do it? Jesus, teach us to pray like, like John taught his disciples to pray. So the Kairos event was large and small, but Jesus allowed and helped his disciples to attend to those Kairos events because they by now knew that if they would only attend to that Kairos event that God was giving them, they were within touching distance of the kingdom. And why wouldn't they want to know that? Why wouldn't they want to be there? Why wouldn't they want to embrace that reality? And on each occasion, Jesus gets his disciples to turn their hearts towards God and believe something different than what they believed before. And it changed them forever. This became the process of discipleship. Take this first time that Jesus articulates these words, this first time when he's walking on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. He has met Peter and Andrew earlier. Andrew has already said to Peter, I think we found the Messiah. They were way down in Judea listening to the ministry of John the Baptist when they first encountered Jesus. It's talked about in, in John's Gospel, chapter one, around about verse 35 and following. And so Jesus has encountered these men and, and some of them maybe already count themselves as his disciples, but he's not called them into intimate relationship with him. There he is in Galilee. He's preaching the word of God. They understand that the time is right, that the kingdom is near. 
but something's happening in their lives. If we put together each of the accounts of this moment in their lives as disciples that we find in the Synoptic Gospels, we discover that they've spent the whole night fishing and they've caught nothing. They're tired. They're frustrated. They're fed up. And along comes Jesus and says, hey guys, how about lending me your boat? Yeah, sure. My boat? My livelihood? The most important thing in my entire life next to my wife and kids? What do you mean? Now, maybe that's what they thought. What they said was a much more religious answer. Of course, Jesus. We've been fishing all night and we're worn out, but because you ask us, we will. They push out and Jesus speaks to the crowd. And then he says, just throw your, your net over the, over the side of the boat. And there is such a vast haul of fish that it fills Peter's boat. He calls over John and James and it fills their boat and both boats are ready to sink for the number of fish. So this is, this is what's going on in their lives, they have this kairos moment. It's building up within them. They're frustrated, they're tired, they're fed up. Jesus seems to calibrate the challenge so that it's even more so. And then he gives them a miracle. And they see it. And they understand it. God cares about me. God loves me. God not only loves me, he loves my family. I mean, this is not just food for me for a day. This is food for my family for a year. This is enough resources for me probably to run my entire business for months on end. And as well as me, my buddy over there, he gets the same blessing. And so repentance is happening in the, inside of Peter and Andrew, James and John. The kairos has occurred. Repentance is beginning. They're turning their hearts towards Jesus. If you are revealing to me a God like this, then maybe I need to lean in because I've never seen this before. A God who would be so superabundant in his blessing that I don't have enough room to contain it. What would that be like? A God who just by the very miracle is telling me that he loves me in unlimited ways with innumerable blessings, in ways that Quite honestly, I'm lost for words to describe, says Peter and Andrew. And it's not just for me. It's for the people around me. This is amazing. So God has said something to Peter and Andrew. But now, 
They need to believe. And what does believe mean? Believe in the New Testament means a trusting intention to act. It it has to result in something. It's not just something that stays inside your head. It's a trust, yes. But the trust leads to an intention. And the intention leads to an action. Jesus says, come follow me. Here is an entirely different plan than the one that they started the day with. This is an entirely different agenda than the one that they had at the beginning of the week. If you believe that the kingdom so expressed to you in this abundant blessing is something that you want to walk into, then follow me and I'll show you how to get in. And if you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. It's not going to be something that's a kind of a, a, a hole in the wall kind of thing. It's not something that's hidden in a corner. This is something that as you do it, everyone will see it. And so they have to make a decision. There's been a reorientation of their heart. They've heard the word articulated in a miracle that God loves them in immeasurable ways. And now they have to act. And so they put down the nets and they follow Jesus. If your faith is faith that has been created by the word of God. And it's not some imagined reality that you're clinging on to for dear life, but is the concrete substance of what you hope for. That's the, that's the way that the Bible puts it in Hebrews 11 verse one. Then it will always it will always produce action. The two key words, the two key questions, the two fundamental realities of discipleship are these. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? So important are these two questions that when Jesus later articulates all of the landscape of the kingdom of God in the most epic sermon that anyone has ever heard, the Sermon on the Mount, he finishes with that very point. Matthew 7, verse 21 you want to join me there, I'll go there really briefly. Matthew 7, verse 24. Jesus has preached this epic sermon. 
beginning with the beginning with the Beatitudes. He has given vivid and remarkable illustrations. And here at the end of his sermon, he says, therefore. Therefore. That means, in the light of everything that you've heard, from the most important sermon that has ever been preached in the history of humanity. Therefore. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And you see what the foolish man does? We would imagine that the foolish man doesn't listen to Jesus. Not so. Not so. The foolish man populates the churches of North America every Sunday. The man who builds his life on sand, that when the storm comes and the floods rise, is swept away, is found sitting in the pews of every church. Because the foolish man listens to what Jesus says and does not put it into practice. You see, if Jesus is ever speaking, then your question is, what is he saying? If Jesus is ever speaking, then my question is, what is he saying to me? And what am I going to do about it? How am I going to put it into practice? The Lord will speak to you in a whole multitude of ways. Different people are wired in different ways. Their personalities are gloriously rent by God, rendered by God to to communicate with him. His desire is that he has an intimate relationship with each one of us and he'll speak to you in a whole variety of different ways. But there is a grammar of guidance. There is a vocabulary of vision. There is a lexicon of leadership. It's called the Bible. God will whisper his words of love to you in your heart. But it's only as you immerse yourself in the scriptures that you will have a familiarity with the phrase book of heaven. And so be able to understand and interpret what he's saying because he's speaking to you every moment of every day. Jesus says this, my sheep hear my voice. He's speaking all the time. It's our task to learn the grammar, to become familiar with the vocabulary, to understand the lexicon, to immerse ourselves in scripture so that as we're driving along, we can hear his whispered words of love. 
speaking to you in a whole variety of ways in the sunrise, in the smile of a child, in those words that run through your mind as you remember the verse or the chorus from your Sunday school days. But we must go beyond that if we're to build our house on the rock. Because Jesus says, to be wise is to answer both of these questions. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? Some weeks, it's important to call you to the front to make a response. And some weeks, it's important to recognize that the word spoken to the congregation is for each one of us. And so as I pray, I'd invite you to stand with me. Bring your body and your spirit to attention and say to the Lord, Lord, I'm ready to hear and what I hear, I'm ready to obey. Would you stand with me? King Jesus, we recognize, Lord, that you have every right to stay silent and say nothing. Because, Lord, you've already said so much, articulated with such depth and insight. And yet, Lord, you choose to speak to us daily. And Lord, we're amazed and we're grateful. And so we ask, Lord, today that you'd help us in our inability. Help us, Lord, today to hear your voice. And help us today, Lord, to put into practice what you say to us. And we pray it, Jesus according to your character and identity. And all God's people say,